Idaho Wildlife Federation, episode number 47, with Brian Brooks. Here we go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. wide world of sports is happening everybody thanks for joining me this is episode number 47 this is jim huntsman your host of the western huntsman podcast and you know what i'm gonna say i'm coming at you from the broken tine studio in hayden idaho all right we got a great episode this week guys uh we are uh, gonna be rolling with brian brooks from the idaho wildlife federation and that is a obviously a local uh idaho association uh, that is kind of centered around conservation and habitat improvements and uh, all sorts of stuff like public lands access. We we get into a lot of detail within this episode, and I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it because uh, I, I like to get these associations in and talk about uh, what they're doing, how they're how they're making an impact and, and improvements that are being made uh, throughout the state. And so this is going to be good for everybody in the West because the issues that we're fighting for and working hard to improve here in the state of Idaho are going to be applicable in all Western states. And so buckle up for that one. But before we get there, I got a special treat for you. A couple weeks ago, if you follow me on uh, social media, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, uh, you may have seen a, a picture I posted where I had uh, gotten this little buck with my daughters. And I have my daughters with me to talk a little bit about this experience and why I do this is because I, I like to talk about getting our youth involved. And I, I bring that up a lot. We talk about it a lot on the show, getting youth hunters uh, up and coming and, and uh, into the ranks of, of the hunting world and hunting this this hunting lifestyle that we do. Gosh, I can't talk straight tonight. <laughs> Bear with me. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that because it is Thanksgiving week and I want to have a fun episode. So here we go. So right here in the Broken Time studio, let me introduce you to uh, my girls. I've got Shiloh, and Paisley. Girls, say hi. Hi. <laughs> that was perfect unison. Don't you say like California or something after that? Jinx or something? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, you guys uh, have been on the show once before when we had Marty Mariotto up from Alaska and uh, and asked him a couple of questions. And so now this is, this is going to be the first time you've been interviewed on the podcast. How are you guys feeling? You nervous? No. Nope. You guys are good? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All ready? Okay. Shiloh, how old are you? 11. Paisley, how old are you? Nine. And we're going to talk about our little deer hunt we went on, right? Mm-hmm. What, uh, let's, let's start with you, Shiloh. Can you give us, give us like a quick overview of, of how the hunt went. We were sitting in the deer blind on our property, and then um, a doe came in with a baby buck, and um, they started stomping at us, and um, then my dad saw a buck come in, and um, we didn't see it at first, so we thought he was going to shoot 
um the baby buck and um then uh, the doe did a really cute noise at us like <laughs> and it was really cute and uh, the buck the baby buck and the doe um stomped at us and uh, then the buck came into a perfect spot and then he shot him and uh, then he went running and yeah and and yeah that's what happened right uh-huh. how long were we in the stand for um not too long not very long paisley what what was it like for you when uh when i whispered at you that there's a buck coming in how did it make you feel i started shaking and i got really excited and then when when he came out of the bushes because he he was kind of hidden back in some brush and then he kind of he, he was slowly working his way in because there was like shiloh said there was that there was that little button buck hanging out with uh with that doe which was his mom i'm sure and all of a sudden here comes the big buck what, I didn't what, see him at first. You didn't see him at first? When you finally saw him, how did that make you feel? It made me feel happy, and also because I thought it was a doe at first, f- until, I thought, until I saw the antlers. So that was probably the first time on a hunting trip that you guys have seen a buck that close, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so it was pretty exciting. How did you feel when you saw it and, and saw that, that it was a buck? My heart started beating really fast. And then after the shot rang out... What did you guys feel? Really nervous and um, happy and stuff, and I started shaking a lot. I felt excited. But I've been really close to a buck before. I was following him on a trail on our trail on our property. I, I found him, and he was just walking, and I got really close to him, closer than we were in the deer blind to him. So then, so then we, so the shot rang out, and then we had to go find him. And it was it was a pretty good blood trail, right? We had a little snow on the ground. And you were kind of taking the lead, Paisley, on on the track job. Tell everybody how you how you found the how, how you found where the deer went. I could tell because there was a lot, a lot of tracks and there's a piece of poop and a <laughs> bunch of um like blood on the snow and like weird marks and there's a mark next to a stump with a bunch of dirt put put up with a bunch of blood on it and I could tell he almost fell right there. But then I found him. It was kind of like tracking that elk last September, wasn't it? A lot like a similar blood trail. Your microphone keeps falling over there. How come it keeps falling? There. There we go. That's better, right? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of spotted that buck laying there. Uh We both did. I didn't hear Paisley, but um, she says she did, and we both said there he is. So it's up in the air. Who saw the buck first? Me. Me. Oh, you both saw it first. (laughs) I think we saw it at the same time because I saw it laying down, and I was like, there he is. At first, I thought it was um, our dog Trevor laying down, but then I realized it was a buck. Yeah, that that dang Trevor of ours, he probably would have been laying down. That's all he does anymore is lay down, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, oh, and bury his stuff, his food from it. Yeah, he likes to take parts of the deer and bury it around the yard, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Earlier, I was looking for a kitty, and then I found him digging at something at the leaves, and then I wondered what he was doing, and then he took a piece of the lungs out of it. Oh yeah, yeah. That, he's he's pretty uh, typical dog that way. He likes to hide deer parts, but we have to get all the stuff we want, so he doesn't get to it. Mm-hmm. So we got the deer, we got him back over here, uh, and we gutted him out, and uh, then then we ended up processing the deer ourselves. One of the questions I want to ask you girls is: You guys lo- love animals, right? We, mm-hmm. we can More agree. More than anything. More yeah, than we love ever. we love all animals, right? Yep. Uh-huh. And when when you saw that process as as animal lovers, did did you feel like any kind of negative feeling towards 
you know, that deer and, and the deer that just lost its life. And, and it was kind of sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we, we understand why that process takes place. And you guys, you guys understand like the circle of life out in Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to say about that? No. Uh, no. Oh, nothing? Okay. You guys are real philosophical sometimes. You, we're getting deep what? now. <laughs> okay, so let's let's shift gears a little bit. You guys like deer meat? Uh-huh, I love it. What's your favorite kind of deer meat? Um, Jerky and jerky. the meatballs that Mommy always makes. The Swedish venison meatballs. I should uh-huh. share that recipe to everybody. Or should we keep it a family secret? Keep it. Okay, so the question is, now now we're going to get real deep. So now you've been through, this was the first time you guys have been out hunting where uh, we actually filled a tag, and you got to see the whole thing from from seeing all the does coming in and passing through and the, the buck, you know, or that little button buck and, and the does stomping their feet on the ground and uh, making noises at us and all sorts of stuff, and then, and then that buck comes in, and we get them. And uh, you, you've seen this whole process kind of come through. When uh, are you guys going to be hunters? Yeah, definitely. definitely. Definitely, you want to be a hunter. Uh-huh. Really bad. Let me ask you this: If I ever allow you to have boyfriends, are you going to be a better hunter than your boyfriend? Of course. Way much better. That's right. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna work on that, right? Mm-hmm. So we've we're uh, starting hunter safety. And we're gonna get that we're gonna get that rolling probably next week. Then we are what kind of what kind of hunting would you rather do, Shiloh? Like bow hunting, rifle hunting? Do you have a preference? All of it. You want to do all of it? Mm-hmm. You want to be bow hunting with Dad during September? Yeah. Now, who is the best hunter you've ever seen in your entire life? You. you. That's right. But you haven't seen a lot of hunters, though, right? On As, TV, I have. Oh, on TV. Okay, so I'm better than the TV guys. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's right. I, I think I just put down uh, on my list here an extra present for Christmas because he said that. So thank. You. Now the whole what? Breaking news! I am the best hunter they've ever seen. Yep. <laughs> Girls, any uh, closing thoughts you want to share with people? Any anything about the experience of hunting deer and and hunting in general that you want to share with people? I love it. You love it. Mm-hmm. How about you? You love it too, but you don't know. Okay. What do you think? You gonna you gonna be a podcaster when you grow up? Maybe. Yeah. You gonna do a hunting podcast? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Sounds good. No, girls. Thanks for joining me on the show today. You're welcome. I appreciate You're welcome. it. I had fun. Actually, uh, one thing that I'll share with people is is it was actually one of my favorite hunts having the girls with me, having you guys with me. That was my um, favorite hunt too. Me too. You're my you're my favorite hunting partners for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them being is you smell a lot better than most of my hunting partners, and that's always a positive thing, especially if we're sitting in a deer blind, because I wouldn't share it like with Uncle Andrew. Would I would I share a deer blind with him? No. No, he know. stinks, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he smells bad. So uh, hopefully he doesn't listen to this though, huh? He'll find out I think he smells bad. <laughs> All right, girls. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, so that that guys, you just heard from Shiloh and Paisley. Those are my my uh, daughters that uh, experienced a, a, an entire hunt unfold, a typical whitetail hunt. You know that the whole sitting in a blind. Uh, oh, that's what I didn't ask. How did how did we get that buck to come in? We rattled with the ant, with the um, thick antlers, and also we we called with the um, call. The 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 grunt tube, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and next time, who, do I have a volunteer for next time who's going to rattle? Me. Me. Oh, you both? Me. Me. Well, somebody needs to grunt, somebody needs to rattle. Me. I'll rattle. Okay. Me. I'll rattle. 
All right. So it was just cool. They were, it was that typical whitetail kind of hunt thing where where we had uh, we, we were using grunt calls. The does were coming in like crazy, and and then uh, we I, I did some uh, rattling with these with these antlers that I have, and it was like ten minutes, not even ten minutes, I don't think, after we rattled, this uh, this buck showed up. So and it helped that there was already a doe and a button buck already hanging around. So it, it was it was just a lot of fun, and and I was glad the girls were there to experience that. And the point is with that, if you guys have kids and and youth hunters available to take out and and kind of exposed to this lifestyle and and the world of hunting and and everything that we do that we uh, we hold so dear to our hearts, I would encourage you guys to get out there, get the kids out there, get them hunting. And I know a lot of you have. I've seen a lot on social media. There's uh, there's man some some of these kids out there. Some of you kids out there are out hunting me. Pretty impressive, so <laughs> pretty cool. And the the point is, guys, is now as we're looking at this, whatever I can do for our community as hunters, uh, that's what I'm going to do. And and one thing that I can say that I've done is I now have two kids here in front of me that will never be anti-hunters. They're never going to shine a negative light on hunting. They understand the hunting ethic that we work so hard to protect and portray, and they're going to be ethical hunters, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to get bigger deer and bigger bulls than daddy, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're going to get bigger deer and bigger bulls than the boyfriend that I might or may not let you have in the future. Of course. Right? Way bigger. Do you think it'll be weird if you bring your boyfriend over to the house and I have my entire gun collection spread out on the kitchen table? Would that would that be weird? No, I would like it because it would scare him. That's right. Mm-hmm. Daddy's scary son of a gun, isn't he? Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> right. And and you'll remind him that Daddy was a Marine. And much better oh, yeah. than him. That's right. That's right. And we'll, we can arm wrestle? Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going too far now. No. Great. Uh, guys, thanks again for tuning in uh, to this episode. Again, I want to get back to before, – before we get into it with, with Brian, uh, I wanted to mention thank you guys who responded last week to the trivia question, which was – how many white-tailed deer were present on the landscape of North America uh, at the tr- turn of the century of 1900, and how many are estimated to be on the landscape now? For those of you who entered that there was approximately 500,000 white-tailed deer at the turn of the century compared to roughly 15 million today, and that if you did your homework and read why, you will understand why hunting is conservation— and that is a huge improvement. The turkey number is even more impressive. Do you girls like – we went turkey hunting. Do you like turkey hunting or deer hunting better? I like deer hunting. Deer hunting. Deer hunting. You get a, we get a lot more meat, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. Plus, we're better at it. Yeah. Daddy's not a very good turkey hunter yet. <laughs> um, okay, so – Anyways, the point being, um, everybody that answered that trivia question, I got you. I've got you uh, all, already kind of downloaded into the system for the giveaway, and uh, that that giveaway is going to be coming up uh, towards I don't know sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Is uh, I have a few more trivia questions, which leads me. By the way, uh, some of you answered the question wrong. Um, you got it. You got it wrong. You are still entered into the giveaway, so don't don't sweat it if you didn't answer it right. Just the fact that you're trying, I got you entered, and it's good. we're going to be good to go, so don't worry about that. So this week, I, I do want to ask you guys just kind of a funny one. Again, it's Thanksgiving week, and uh, th- this week's question is going to be, in the episode coming up today with Brian Brooks, whose name do I mispronounce? Because I was 
talking too fast or whatever I was doing. You know, you, you know how it goes. I get on here and mispronounce stuff all the time. But this week I, I mispronounce somebody's name totally wrong. Write into Jim at the Western Huntsman.com and tell me what name that was. And I'll get you entered. All right, this week, Brian Brooks, Idaho Wildlife Federation. The Idaho Wildlife Federation is an organization here in the state of Idaho that you guys should uh, look into getting involved in and uh, join as a member because they do a lot of good things for public land, habitat, access, things like that. And we're going to get into all that in this episode. Uh, and Brian is the executive director over at IWF, and he's a really good dude. He's, he's very articulate and does a really good job explaining what the mission of the IWF is. And so with that said, without further ado, let's get into it with Brian. And you guys have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Have a great weekend. If you're still hunting, good luck. Share the episode if you love it, and we'll see you next week. Here we go. All right, for the second time, Brian, how you doing, brother? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm just, I'm glad we finally got, we're able to connect here. Uh, for those of you listening, we, we've had a heck of a time. We, we've been talking for like two or three months about getting Brian on the show. And uh, then we had it scheduled for last week. And we had the snow coplics come in. And for anybody in North Idaho that knows when, when it snows and you're on satellite internet, it shuts you down. So, uh, here we go. Uh, Brian is in Boise and he is the, are you the executive director, Brian, of Idaho Federation or Wildlife Federation or what do you do? Oh, that is correct. I am the executive director of the Idaho Wildlife Federation. I'm located down here in Boise. And this, this is what I want to get into. I want to talk about the, the Wildlife Federation, um, what you guys do, you sent a message talking about how we need to be a unified voice as sportsmen, uh, and, and we're going to talk conservation issues, just, you know, a whole myriad of topics. But before we do that, let's jump into your background, uh, who you are and, and, uh, give us, give us that little rundown and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got a, a good grab bag of, of things to talk about. And that makes sense. Cause I'm kind of a, a grab bag sportsman. Um, I grew up in Idaho. We, my family moved here when I was five, and I'm not going to say where from, uh, but <laughs> my, my dad grew up in Wisconsin on a farm. <laughs> he grew up uh, hunting and fishing, and um, so when we moved here, we started doing those same kinds of things. I have, I have two older brothers, Brad and Curtis. Uh, you know, Curtis is involved in the, the National Wild Turkey Federation. He's on the state board. My brother works for uh, the Wilderness Society, and he owns his own uh, hunting company where he produces DIY public land hunt films. And just uh, in the last uh, couple of years, he's been manufacturing um, knives for the backcountry and game bags, and I'm sure he has more more products coming out. And so we're really um, outdoorsy family. It's 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 what we do. It's in our blood. It's what we give our careers to. And so um, we grew up exploring, you know, Idaho, every corner of it. Uh, mostly pursuing animals. Um, so when I say I'm a grab bag sportsman, I, I, I maybe a better term is I'm, I'm a generalist. I like to hunt all of the upland birds, waterfowl, uh, deer, elk, whitetail, turkeys, whatever's in season. Um, 
Yeah. I have tagged along on bear hunts and uh, cougar hunts. I don't uh, quite, I haven't quite gotten into that myself yet. It's a lot of overlapping seasons, as you know. Um, yeah, but, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's almost too much to do in Idaho, but uh, I also fly fish, spin fish, bait fish. I fish for salmon steelhead. I go ice fishing. Um, you know, Idaho is just a great place to live. And if you take advantage of it, you still, there's not enough weekends in the year to, to do it all. That's fantastic, man. I think, I think most hunters are like that too, where we're, you have, you have some hunters, there's like two types of hunters. You have, you have some that are just absolute experts in one specific thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then you kind of have guys like us that are jacks of all trades. And yeah. I'm with, I'm with you. I'm, I've just gotten into bear hunting. I I'm a miserable failure at it so far. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully in the years to come, that'll change. But, and then you have a real specific group of dudes that are just expert level hunters. I shouldn't say dudes, people that are just expert level hunters at, uh, you know, all sorts of species. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, so like, cool. uh, they're like the Jason Bournes of one specific thing. I mean, I, great yeah, exactly. the guys who get into, to hounding, um, for cats. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is like all they do year around, they're working on their dogs, they're training their dogs. And, uh, I mean, they, I've always joked around. I wonder who spends more money, those guys that are hyper-specific on one thing or the guys that are sort of the more uh, grab bag guys like us. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. You know who spends a lot of money are trappers. Like oh, yeah. you have to, to be successful at trapping, you have to like fully absorb yourself in, in the entire sport and it's expensive and it's difficult. And I'm always blown away with, uh, uh, some of my buddies that are, that are, they're serious trappers and how much time and money they, they commit to it. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They spend a lot of money on those irons. They spend a lot of time going through their traps and, uh, you need, I mean, ATVs, horses, you name it. It takes a lot to be a, to be a good trapper, especially when you're going after, uh, some of those predator species that you can only get in the dead of winter. That takes a lot of equipment. Um, yeah, and you interviewed, sure. uh, you interviewed a friend of mine, uh, president of the Trappers Association, Rusty Kramer. I mean, I, I, follow that guy and I ask him questions occasionally, but man, yeah, it's a, uh, it is a true lifestyle uh, activity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And Rusty, he's famous, man. Everybody knows him in Idaho. Yeah. He, <laughs> he comes up on the show all the time and he's yeah, one of my he favorite around. people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's, no, he's, 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 honestly, he's, he's a good guy. What, what I do for work and we'll get into this in a sec. I, I have to like know a lot of people and, and, and work with the heads of organizations that represent different sportsman um type folks and and rusty is just uh, i'm really glad we have him on our side and representing uh trapping i mean i just there's yeah no one better uh and you you know as well as probably anybody else uh trapping is uh they take a lot of heat from people who really don't understand it and it takes a pretty level head to to really take yeah. that in and respond calmly and coolly and uh he's a good guy yeah, for sure. So as, as, as all of us are hunters and, and we understand some of the challenges we face with folks that are against hunting, it's a lot worse on the trapping side. And I think the Idaho Trappers Association, uh, man, they're lucky to have Rusty. So that's, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit about uh, the Idaho Wildlife Federation and okay. uh, the goals, the concept, everything about the association that people should know. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a it's Idaho's oldest statewide conservation organization. It was founded in 1936 by sportsmen and women uh, of Idaho who back in the day were 
you know, most people in Idaho back then were working in agriculture. They were mining. They were logging. It was a lot of natural resource based jobs and they were spending their money um, on the same things that, that we do now, like outdoor recreation, hunting and fishing was even more popular back then. And it was even more of a subsistence thing. Um, and back then, you know, we had <clears throat> uh, even larger populations of salmon and steelhead. They were really big fish. Um, and we just saw a really poor treatment of the landscapes, the rivers. There was no regulations really to balance this out. And at the time, there was a Department of Fish and Game, but it was head up by the state game warden. And that was a direct political appointee of the gov the governor. And sportsmen and women back then uh, basically saw it as a, a real big crock, uh, basically a crony. They were giving out tags, uh, prized elk hunting tags to, you know, pull it for political favors. And it was when you manage wildlife in that kind of way, it really doesn't work out for the wildlife. Um, and, and the people were angry about it. And so they, uh, at the same time, there was this conservation ethic movement uh, sweeping across the country. And um, it, so this wasn't get, just getting attention in Idaho, it was getting attention across uh, the country. Our game species were really depleting. And mm -hmm. a few politicians and another, a famous political cartoonist of all people, uh, decided to have uh, get people from across the country to have this, what they called the General Wildlife Assembly. And uh, delegates from every single state came uh, from across this country and, and met in Washington, D.C. And they came up with essentially a way to codify the, the tenets of the North American model of wildlife conservation. And the formation of that General Wildlife Assembly as uh, what came out of it was the National Wildlife Federation, where they had this idea where delegates from all 50 states, well, back then there wasn't even 50 states, uh, delegates from all of the states would come once a year to a different area to vote on policy stances that this National Wildlife Federation would take in Washington, D.C. Uh, and try to influence policy and legislation on the federal side. So the Idaho delegates, they came back to Idaho and they said, you know what, we need to we need to federate our state organizations. Back then, there was a bunch of county rod and gun clubs, a bunch of wildlife conservation groups, but they were located all over Idaho and they had no unified voice. And so the, the delegates came back here and they got all of them together in Boise and they formed the Idaho Wildlife Federation. I and, didn't know it was that old. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool story. And and it took about two years for them. That that General Wildlife Assembly happened in 1936. Uh, the, the Idaho Wildlife Federation formed in 1938. And gotcha. the very first thing that they promised they would do is that they would form an independent commission of scientists who would dictate policy regulations seasons for our game and fish um, and, and and pretty much remove uh, their future from political jeopardy. And they went to the legislature to ask them to pass a bill and the legislature in 1938 said, nope, sorry. Um, and the Federation basically said, all right, well, in two years, you'll have a response. And uh, I'm sorry, that all happened in 1936. Two years later, the Idaho Wildlife Federation had campaigned across the state, recruiting volunteers, 
donations, enough money to staff this campaign effort. And the result was the passage of Idaho's first citizens initiative. So we got, they got enough signatures to put this idea on the ballot that wildlife should be managed by science, should be managed by people who, you know, know what they're doing. (laughs) This burgeoning idea of ecology, which was new back then. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it passed with, I think, 76% of voters in Idaho. And so that was like the beginning of the Idaho Wildlife Federation. And for a long time, the Federation was the only game in town. Uh, It was a huge organization. I believe they had 80 affiliate uh, organizations across the state. I'm not even sure there's 80 wildlife and hunting clubs and organizations in existence in Idaho these days. Um, Yeah. But yeah. And so they were they were a big force to be reckoned with. And then in the 70s. In 60s, you see the proliferation of more species-specific groups, um, and and there was more people who kind of joined the fight, but also kind of aligned with the Wildlife Federation. And, you know, as is common with a lot of statewide nonprofits, they ebb and they flow. Um, And a lot of people who are very passionate about wildlife tend to join boards and uh, of organizations and they do really well. Um, They're very passionate about wildlife, but managing a business, specifically a nonprofit might not be their forte. And so, you know, they'll still be passionate about wildlife, um, but they may let the organizational capacity kind of slip past. And so IWF has had its heyday. It's, it's come back. um, It's, it's uh, gone into regression. And so I was hired on in 2016 the very beginning. And we had just a little bit of money in the bank. And um, I actually opted for this job over a job with the city of Boise doing um, habitat restoration. Well, that's what they called it. It was really landscaping, but uh, (laughs) working for the the city is a pretty good gig, but uh, I... uh, Yeah, really good benefits and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And this opportunity came up and I talked to... uh, the president of the organization, he said, you know, I'm not going to lie. This is an uphill battle. Uh, this is he, he went through the history of the organization. He said, we're not in a good place right now. There is no real unified sportsman voice in the state of Idaho. So you'd be building that back up from the ground. And, you know, I I, I went to school at University of Idaho and and, and I did a lot of science type stuff. And I, I have done some habitat restoration, that kind of stuff. And I didn't know anything about managing a nonprofit. Sure. And so it's pretty daunting. And, uh, you know, I sat on that idea for a weekend. I went duck hunting and it was in the duck blind where I was like, you know, it would be really cool to fight for this kind of thing for duck hunting or all types of hunting. Like I love hunting. That's what I do. Uh, and so I, I, I turned down the job with the city and I went with the Federation and I was making halftime pay and just started putting the pieces, laying the bricks of a foundation for that any nonprofit needs, let alone one that advocates for wildlife and hunting and fishing. And, and um, so over the last five years, we've grown um, to where uh, I'm full time paid, which is great. Uh, but we also have uh, four we have four full time employees um, and we have one office in uh, Grangeville at the moment. And then one of our employees is moving out to Salmon. So we'll actually have three locations around the state. And we were about to hire a fifth employee. Um, but then COVID hit and uh, our, we're just kind of being a bit conservative with our spending. And so uh, we're, we're a rapidly growing uh, organization. 
um, getting members and donors across the state. And we work on a whole lot of stuff, which we can, we can talk about. And it's uh, really, it's fun to talk about it. I mean, I, it was kind of fun to be there from day one and pick this thing back up and kind of make it in an image that I thought would work in a, a new day and age um, where, you know, you got to be fast to respond to things and, and there's a different kind of donor class these days. You know, there's there's not the same old go to a banquet, bid on a shotgun anymore, especially with COVID. Um, you know, millennials are the coming up through the ranks and, and getting jobs and believe it or not. <laughs> and, yeah. and so we have to figure out a way to market to new people. Like, what are people interested in funding? And so um, and I just make the case that, uh, you know, there are a lot of great organizations in Idaho. And if you really want to make a difference for hunting and fishing advocacy, you need paid people who will give attention to our issues uh, 40 hours a week, at least. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. And so, uh, well, I've, that's, that, that's yeah. a great, that's a great point, Brian, because I, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but w- when we're talking about the, the people that are threatening the, the lifestyle of hunting, fishing, trapping, outdoors, you know, the, these things that we have people that are against that lifestyle and they want mm-hmm. it to end and they have full-time employees, they have attorneys, they have staffs, they have researchers and they, they are well-funded because they're really good at marketing to the emotional side of people that are against this. And so they, oh, yeah. they, they market into these big urban areas and, and get these, get this money and these donations built up. So they have full-time active people that are, I hate to use the term out to get us because it sounds, you know, conspiracy theorists, but mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of what it is. So I agree with that. We do need full-time people. This is their life. This is their job. This is what they do every single day. They are on top of it. And that's why I am such an advocate for groups yeah. like Wildlife, Idaho Wildlife Federation and, and other groups. Can yeah, you give no, us, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I think um, when you think about what kind of people uh, donate to different causes, um, you know, they're there are a lot of wealthy people who are giving to say anti-trapping causes. And, um, and so that's a pretty big donor pool and they can make a lot of money. They can pay attorneys, full-time staff. And, um, you know, a sportsman organization like our own sportsmen don't aren't that same donor class. We're mostly blue collar people who, you know, uh, we have to really think about whether we should give $50 or $100 to an organization where some folks that might be giving to uh, an opposing cause, that's nothing to them. Yeah. Uh, and so it is, it's, it's an extra layer of difficulty for us to really maintain that competitiveness and, and meet those people where they're fighting those battles. Exactly. And you really have to paint that picture. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is let's, let's say we've got somebody who's they're, they're making a six figure income in some big urban area, like Mm -hmm. let's, let's use Oakland, California, for example, (laughs) they, they come home on a Saturday morning. Uh, they, they have, they never leave these urban areas. They they don't live amongst (laughs) the wildlife. They don't understand, uh, hunting for substance and, and, and managing wildlife because they don't really, their idea of wildlife are the Canadian geese that, uh, fly into the pond at the park and they gripe at people for giving them bread. That's, that's their <laughs> idea of, of wildlife management, right? But then yeah. they see this ad. 
They see this mm-hmm. ad come on the, the TV and it's super emotional. They paint this picture of, of, you know, wolves are endangered and they're cuddly and fluffy and super friendly. And, mm-hmm. uh, the, the landscape needs the wolves donate 20 bucks, donate a hundred bucks, help us with this cause. And that money turns around and comes and attacks people like us in Idaho. And so that's the, the picture that I want to paint for, for listeners that may not, mm-hmm. you know, fully put that whole picture together. Uh, and that's why it's, that's, again, that's, that's why this is so important. Yeah. I mean, then they, those commercials have, uh, what Sarah McLaughlin's arms of the angel. It's really tough to compete with Sarah McLaughlin, yeah. man. We don't, we don't have it that is. tool in our back pocket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they, yeah, they I mean, don't, it, they don't put it together. They don't put it together. Like what does Sarah McLaughlin know about wolf management in the state of Idaho? You know, they, right. they don't put it together. So yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, I got to say too, I mean, it's, uh, we're getting it from that end and it's well-funded. And then there's another end and, and, and this isn't a, a partisan political statement, but there are people who see, uh, you know, that's the hunting side of things. That's the trapping side of things, the mushy gushy kind of like, Oh, don't hurt the poor animals kind of thing. And, and on the other side of this, and this is like just as sinister, there are people who see the vast, uh, undistributed wealth of our public lands as a very big opportunity to make a lot of money. And that is not, that's not false. Uh, I mean, that, that is, it is undistributed wealth and we all own it as Americans. And so we're not just getting it from, you know, the, the tree huggers, we're, we're getting it from the, the, the people who are looking at this kind of rubbing their hands saying, good Lord, that is a lot of money out there and they see green. And so it's, and they're, Pockets are incredibly deep as well. And we've seen a lot of that uh, already taking place in, in places like, uh, well, Southern Idaho down here, we had the Wilkes brothers come in and they're the largest landowners in Montana. They're like the second or third largest landowners in Idaho. And and they put a lot, of, and they're billionaires with a B, multi-multi-billions, putting a mm-hmm. lot of their resources into uh, uh, politicians' pockets and organizations' pockets who are actively advocating to privatize a lot of those lands that you and I hunt on. And so we're, as sportsmen, we're getting it from both ends. And I think to me, that says time to come together. You know, yeah. bow hunting guys and, and, and rifle guys like to bitch, bicker, <laughs> bicker at each other. No, we'll call it you're, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, they, it, you're exactly right. That's, that's, yeah. that's one of the, the underlying, uh, I guess, foundational purposes of, of my show is like you explained in the beginning, you, you do all of this stuff and, mm-hmm. and you, you hit on one that I, I thought I was the only one that ever paid attention to this, but I am a fly fisherman. I am a spin fisherman. Uh, <laughs> I like to, I like to put a night crawler on the end of a line and throw it out and sit there with my kids and catch fish. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not picky. And, and a lot of, a lot, we have a tendency as, as sportsmen to, to kind of have this, oh, well, I'm a fly fisherman. And, 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 uh, so that means I'm better than you using a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a Jake on a, yeah. a you know, spin rod <laughs> or something like that. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's this thing that happens. And, and that's what one, one of my goals with this show was to try to smooth a lot of that out because I, I have no right in, in my life to uh, judge other people in the, in the methods that they do. And, and I can back it up because I bow hunt, I rifle hunt. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. slacking on muzzle loading hunting or uh, muzzle loader <laughs> hunting, but uh, I do it all and, and I enjoy it all. You ever go hunting with somebody that always chintzes out on like the most important thing, like boots 
I did a couple times. And you know what happened? They slipped and fell down the mountain the entire month of September. That's what happens when you buy $100 boots and, and try to make them last. They don't last. Guys, Hoffman Boots, can't say enough good things about this company. It's a great family-owned business right here in North Idaho. They make badass boots. These things are insanely, insanely comfortable. They just glue your feet to the mountain in the steepest of conditions. They will keep you safer because of that. So while my buddies are falling on their butt the entire time, I'm walking down like I'm in the park. Guys, I have a great promo code that'll save you 15% if you go to HoffmanBoots.com. It is all caps lock, Huntsman 15 in the checkout when you are ready for a new pair of great boots that you won't have to replace for a very long time. Guys, Scree. Scree is Extreme Mountain Gear. They were one of the first sponsors of this podcast. And this high-performance hunting attire and gear is its scientifically tested camo patterns, backed by a great company, and it's got a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing, and, and, and exchange program. Basically, if you if you order it and it's the wrong size, they pay for it to get shipped back, and they're going to send it back. I heard of some dude that accidentally ripped uh, a pair of his hard scrabble pants, and he was upset about it, and he let Scree know, and they replaced them for him. Guys, this is a great company. That's the kind of company that I am proud to have supporting this show and being partnered with them uh it's just again a great company story and and, and a company that you guys would be proud to own the gear for it'll get you through any season anywhere in north america Check it out at ScreeGear.com and use the promo code the western huntsman for 15 percent off and free shipping at checkout and last but by far not least Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Phelps Game Calls, uh, I, I, you guys, if you've listened to any of these episodes, uh, as I, as I kind of dissected my last September, I had so many bull elk encounters using these calls, and I used everything from the pink Maverick to the Ma- or the pink amp to the Maverick. I used the Renegade bugle tube. I used a couple of their external read calls. I uh, just had a ball calling in elk left and right, hand over fist, because these calls work. Obviously, they work well. It's not just about that, though. Guys, Jason Phelps started this company from scratch and built it into what it is now. The company, the game call company that we all know well. And I, I just, I think that that is so important. These the, these American companies that are born out of an idea and they grow into this this thing that, that we can all get behind and love and support and the, and the personalities and the people behind it, that's Phelps Game Calls. Salt of the Earth company, salt of the earth people that run it. And I can't say enough good things about Phelps Game Calls. Don't forget, it's not just about elk with Phelps. You get you a, uh, a black ta- a blacktail in distress call and watch those deer come into you while they're rutting because it fires up those, those does. And what do you think is right behind those does during the rut? November's coming. Make sure you're getting your deer calls as well. So check it out at phelpsgamecalls.com and use the promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off at sh- uh, checkout. I keep wanting to say shipping. (laughs) That's how I roll. All right, guys. With that said, thank you to the sponsors of this show. Let's get back to the discussion. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I mean, I I started archery hunting a couple years ago just so I could start eating more pronghorn. And it's just, I, but because of the nature of our work, you know, right now that the Wildlife Federation, we represent 29 affiliated sportsmen and wildlife conservation groups across the state. They are vastly 
different, not only in their geography, but in also, you know, the animal, some of them are species specific. Some of them are, are harvest specific. You know, there's the Idaho state bow hunters. You interviewed Scott Schmidt. He's a, he's a good friend. Um, and, and it's just, old Schmitty. old Schmitty. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> just a lot of that bickering between our groups on this and that. I mean, it's ultimately it's, it, it's, it's useless. Um, and you know, some of it's some good natured ribbing. I feel like I, I, uh, as a generalist, I can cross those paths, you know, I'll fillet a bluegill and fry it up and eat it, catching it on, you know, power bait. And I'll sit next to guys with, you know, $5,000 Loomis fly rods on Silver Creek, um, and fly fish. I won't have one of those rods, but I'll fly fish next to them and kind of relate. And I think there's, there's enough that, that, that unites us together. And, and, and there's, there's enough that we can all agree on, um, and I think we have really similar goals. And like I said, I got to kind of remake IWF and, and the values that I grew up, you know, having and, and learning from my dad and his family about being in the outdoors. And so what I grew up with seeing that same thing, the different kind of cultures that come to, you know, just different types of fishing or, or what have you. And it's just like, man, there's a, it just doesn't make sense when we're, when we're in fighting and it's like a circular firing squad. We're all taking shots at each other and, Meanwhile, the world is closing in on us, trying to, like I said before, coming at us, uh, our interests from both ends. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Very good point. Um, can you give us like every association, every foundation, organization, nonprofit, whatever you want to call it, has like like two or three main priorities? Yeah. And, and what, what would you say those are for Idaho Wildlife Federation? Access to lands. And mm-hmm. to the fish and wildlife and opportunity, which to me not only means the access to the wildlife, but it also means having abundant fish and wildlife, which means we have to support really good policy and we have to support smart seasons. Our, yeah, like you said, all of all organizations kind of have their one thing that they focus on. Um, I think for IWF, uh, we focus on access, quality habitat abundant fish and wildlife, and we defend public lands because there's an effort right now to to privatize public lands. But not only the other side of that coin is also promoting public lands and making sure they have active and good science-based management as well. So if we're going to have public yeah. lands, which is great, we also need to manage them. And so um, I can kind of walk through those different things, um, you know, access to us means access to not only the landscape, um, and that is access is a broad definition. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Some people uh, want to be able to ride motorized vehicles off-road all over the place. Some people just want to do it on roads or trails, and some people just want to be able to get to a trailhead and do walk-in only. And I think anyone who's grown up hunting all of their life recognizes the value of that spectrum and that there is an opportunity for us to have and space to have all of those types of access. Um, obviously, the, the the term wilderness with a capital W has a lot of connotations with it. But Jim, I do almost all of my hunting in wilderness. And I grew up with wolves in my life. And I've never known what it was like pre-wolves and that kind of stuff. So, But we've always, because we put in the time, I love hunting in wilderness. You see far fewer people. The animals are far more abundant and there's a lot different uh, age class variety. Yeah. Um, I be- feel like every time yeah. I emailed you, you were like, oh yeah, well, let's, uh, let's bump this out another week because I'll be in the church. Uh, yeah. The next <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, 
uh, that luckily that's a broad enough area. If my brothers knew that I even said that they'd kill me. No, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it's such an asset to have as a hunter to be able to go where other people won't go just because it's more than a mile off a road. I mean, that is something special. Uh, you hunt in other states that have really high road densities or even forests, national forests and BLM spots in Idaho that have high density roads. You're going to see a ton of people and there is. Yeah. North sound, Idaho like that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, exactly. The Clearwater Forest, I think, has on average uh, about over four miles of road per square mile. It's, yeah, that it's, doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise yeah, me. It's, 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 we don't have backcountry up here like, like we, we do in central and southern Idaho. It's, yeah. it's real. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Somebody's going to send me a nasty email because I said that. <laughs> we, we do have some backcountry. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it, it is, it, it, this is not wilderness up here. It's national forest. There's a lot of logging roads. There's a lot of encroachment. There's roads everywhere. People can always get, I, it, it's difficult to get 10 miles away from a road here. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I say access, I mean it all under everything under the sun at some places are, it's appropriate to have a wilderness style, uh, hunt a primitive style hunt. Um, a lot of people crave that more and more. Actually, people are craving that. But there's also people who do not have the physical capabilities for one reason or another. Could be age, uh, could be health. That just can't do wilderness style hunts, or they can't. They don't own horses, uh, and or you know. So it's appropriate for them to have opportunity as well. And so there's a spectrum, and I think there is a there's space across Idaho for us to have it all, and it is all valuable. And I don't <laughs> think one is more or less valuable than the other. Um, and then yeah. the other term that we, uh, the other kind of side of access is access to wildlife. So not only do you need access to the, 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 the landscape, but, and if there's, you know, fish in a river, you want to have access to, to be able to actually fish. So one, th- you know, if you're able to float a river, it's one thing, it's a completely other thing. If the river is devoid of fish and you don't actually have access to fishing. So there's two different sides of access, access to land and then, and waters and access to the fish and wildlife that populate them. And, uh, our other big issue of course is habitat, making sure that we have, uh, good policies in place that, um, preserve the habitat that we have. It's far less expensive to look at what we have that's valuable habitat and just create policies around it that don't uh, denigrate it in any way. And I know that nobody at me for using the term uh, preserve here, but I don't mean preserve as in stick it in wilderness. I mean, just look at the the quality of it ha- it has now. So is it mixed age timber? Uh, is it a, a stand of burned trees that's always, that's good for elk feeding habitat? Um, we look at that and we say, okay, you know what, this is working here. And why is it working? And so, or we say, Hey, it's not working here. Should we put some, should we find some federal or state funding that can help do maybe some prescribed burns, thin this thing out? Uh, Do we need to log this area uh, to thin it out? What's, and we always try to apply an economic lens. We're the the federation, um, at least while I'll be around, we're not a litigant group. Um, We are not going to, we, we promote the other we, and recognize the other economic uses of these landscapes. And mm. so if they're and we work closely with some of Idaho's uh, logging and, and timber companies and and, you know, the, the Clearwater Nest or the Nez Clear Forest is a great example. We are promoting logging in that area to open it up. Um, so it's good for the, the loggers in the area and the logging industry, but it's also good for the, the elk and uh, and whitetail habitat to, to kind of replicate what it would look like if we had more normal uh, fire regimes burning through the forest that we used to have. 
Man, so, you just you just like unpacked a whole ton of stuff there, and it it, it gives me. Yeah, I I have tons of questions. Um, <laughs> good, good. I wanna uh, I wanna break those three pillars mm-hmm. down a little bit. Uh, sure. Did I cut you off? Do you, I I feel like I might have cut you off. I, real real nice. No, if we <laughs> if we were conversing in person, this is like the new like Zoom normal. Like you can't tell like read people's body language. I was gonna. I, we have two more things that we work on. It's fish and wildlife policy and it's public lands. But we can. It all ties together. So we're we're good to okay. move on. Mm-hmm. I I because I, I want to talk about the three main things that you said. Access. Mm-hmm. Uh, access to fish and wildlife and habitat. And before, before I ask you about those, um, I, I, I have to ask the question. So we're obviously, we're in Idaho. Our focus is Idaho, but this show gets downloaded, uh, all over the place, specifically in the Western states, because this is a Western hunting, uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense. Would you say that in other states like uh, sister Western states, if you want to call it that, like, you know, we could we could discuss Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, um, Nevada, California, even uh, are are the challenges are, are they fairly similar in the Western states or is it is it really a micro problem in Idaho uh, that we're going to we're going to delve into here? No, it's it's west wide, west okay. and, and it's, it, obviously they vary. Um, but what we're going to dive into, they are west wide. Um, but if you know, as a, a quick example, you know, in California, it's obviously a completely different place from Idaho. I don't know if your listeners know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but politically, socially, economically, it's it's a vastly different area. But you know, their habitat degradation, they're really, they preserve a lot of their habitat, but it, it, with policy, but they kind of love it to death by promoting other types of recreation. Like, I mean, from mountain biking, hiking, and that's, what's hurting wildlife over there, not mm-hmm. lot like poor logging practices or mining. So yeah, it's, 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 um, similar in, uh, things that are happening all over the West, maybe for different reasons, but it's, it's all very congruent. Okay, so it's it's fair to say, you, you know, if if you're listening to this in a Western state, there's a lot of parallels we're going to be discussing here, especially when you talk about like the Wilkes Brothers, they own uh, the oh, yeah. most private land in Montana. We deal with Wilkes Brothers issues here all the time. They're constantly popping up, drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> I, I can't stand the whole Texas billionaire buying up our public land thing. Um, yeah. It's yeah. part, partly why my gray is, uh, my beard is so gray. And anyway, <laughs> so let's, let's break those down a little bit. Uh, let's first talk about access in your mind and, and maybe, maybe the consensus uh, among the Idaho Wildlife Federation. What is the biggest challenge that we face as outdoorsmen in terms of access? Hmm. Well, I'm going to get a little uh, nebulous here, and it might be a, a question where we're a little zooming out a little bit, but without pinpointing, and we, we'll, I'll get to this, pinpointing actual sources of what's challenging our access right now, a lot of this would be, these resolutions to these access issues would be resolved uh, a lot faster, or we wouldn't need to pay attention to most of them because it would be happening less if sportsmen were more plugged in to the decisions of government, uh, and and I don't just mean 
federal government, I mean the state government, and I mean uh, more specifically their legislators and their county commissioners. Um, the uh, those people, county commissioners and state legislators, have a lot of influence on decisions that are made uh, that that with it with regards to um, certain roads and um, also enforcement of illegal road closures by say two Texas uh, billionaire brothers, um, and then of course you know paying more attention to and engaging in a thoughtful and helpful way with federal land managers would go a long way um, in keeping certain roads open and, and finding out really why roads might be closing as far as that kind of access. So to me, um, and again, these are the way, this is kind of the way I have to look at these problems that the root of uh, and challenges of access is a lot of times it's in retrospect and um, sportsmen like to complain a lot, but it's it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get them to engage in a thoughtful way with the people who actually are in the positions of power um, that will listen to them. Um, I think I think you're exactly right with that, that I and I don't know where that comes from, because there is no I know of no other group of, uh, you know, a combination of people with with attitudes and opinions as strong as hunters. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? And, and, and I'm that way. I'm, I'm, I've got super strong opinions and, and I have tried to get some of our state legislators and, and even, even at the, the federal level, I've, I've tried to get Russ Fulcher on this show because mm-hmm. I had his opponent on the show and man, he will not answer me. And I think it's because they know that I, I'm not a huge fan of politicians and, and mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like they, um, you know what? What yeah. they're telling me with one foot, they're stepping in a whole different pot with their other foot, and and uh, they know I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get that out of them. So, yeah. um, what? You know, here's a side side question with this yeah. Wilkes brother thing. Uh, maybe you can confirm this. Is it true that they put up private no trespassing signs on a public road that they didn't actually own? Yes, that is true. Okay, more than, I, one, more than one road too. Interesting, because I, I and what I've because I, I kept seeing that that's that's much more of a problem for you guys in southern Idaho than it is up here. Yeah. Uh, so the, I, I you never know what's fake news and what's not. But um, yeah. I, I was wondering about that. So I'm, I appreciate you, uh, you, yeah. you kind of verifying that. So I'm actually well, my, my with, with my employee, Becca, and I, we, we got a report from a sportsman, a grouse hunter, actually, that uh, he was going up and, and said, I think there's a road up here that has a, a closed sign on it. And this I've been using this road my dad showed me this road when I was a kid and he'd been using it and it was the Boise Ridge road. It's just up above Boise. It's really close by here. And, uh, yeah, I went up there. Sure. Shit. There was a road, uh, a gate across the road with a private road sign, no trespassing. And, uh, they had dug trenches on the other side of the road on each side. So you couldn't get a motorized vehicle across it. And, uh, yeah, we ended up, yeah, yeah. We ended up doing the, uh, we went to the County. It was in Boise County, not Ada. So we went to the Boise County Clerk's office, read through old deeds from dating back to the 30s. Uh, I mean, none of it was digitized. It was all covered in dust. And I mean, we found deeds. The, the road was constructed by the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, built with taxpayer dollars. We found articles in the historical archives from the papers back in the 30s. Governor, whoever the governor was back in the 30s was championing in it. It was like a, it was a, 
connection road to Schaefer Butte, um, a sort of recreation road connecting Horseshoe Bend and Idaho City to Boise as an alternate route. It was championed as like a fire suppression um, way. It, but the point is like we had we have proof that and you can see the kids digging in the dirt and grading and blading that road. Um, and yeah, they just went ahead and said, uh, nope, that that's ours now. And how, come so, the, how, how did they do that? Why, why would they do that? They don't own that land. Entitlement. <laughs> I mean, they, that, they, that's they nuts own, to me, man. I, I so like they, I would have rented they, a backhoe and went and fixed all that and ripped their gate out. Uh, right. And I, we, the, the thing is that there's multiple reasons why they've gotten away with it so far. But I will say that the gears of justice turn slowly and things are moving on some of those fronts. I can't give a lot away, but we have the proof. But the problem extends again. This this comes back to sports and paying attention to what their legislators vote on. For the last three years, we have gotten a bill introduced that we call it the Public Access Protection Act, um, PAPA. This year, I think we're going to call it the Make Access Great Again Act. Um, and it would give the problem. Idaho law currently states that you just can't communicate that any public land is private. And that's fine. That, that's a good law to have on the books. But talking to county prosecutors across the state, especially the ones that have Wilkes Brothers property in their county, they think that if they go, if they use that criminal code to go after the Wilkes brothers, they will lose because technically a, a road that is a public road is actually an, an overlay. It's still technically private property, but it is public egress uh, or an easement laid over private land. And so they're like, well, technically wow. Idaho law kind of has this loophole. Um, like they all believe like, yes, we know this there is proof. You guys have dug up the proof that this is a public road. However, yeah, so it's so we have a bill that would rectify that, that defines public lands as not only any lands that are owned by the federal, state, or county governments that are open to, legally open to public use, but also includes um, public's, public use uh, easements and agreements, overlaying private property, navigable waterways, trails that are open for public use, you know, so it kind of defines it a little better and would make the law better. Consistently, the bill has been killed three years in a row. And who do you think showed up to kill that son of a bitch? The The Wills Brothers lobbyists. (laughs) I mean, they have a team of lobbyists. I would love to to put it out that if there is a very small chance that somebody likes like the Wilkes Brothers listens to this show. But if if you do and you have the balls to come on my show, you are welcome. I will, I will reschedule my entire week to make that, to, to give you room, you Wilkes brothers, to come on my show and explain yourself. Just wanted yeah. to throw that out there. I'd listen to that in a heartbeat. I mean, and the thing is, is like, I don't think they're, they're not doing it because they're like, people want to portray them as the boogeyman. And I'm just telling them like, you guys, they're, you know, they're not inherently evil. They just come from Texas. They don't know anything. They don't have that public resource ethic. And, you know, I talked to legislators about, I'm like, look at this. I mean, you've seen the news stories. You've seen the papers. You know that they're blocking out public roads. Why aren't, this is your job to help the people of Idaho. And they, they, their response is, well, they may have been a bit ham-handed and putting up road closed signs. I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about here? Like, <laughs> this is this is an infringement on public property rights. I mean, we, we understand, I think as a nation and especially Idahoans, we all understand what public or uh, private property rights are. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think it's time to, to, to look at the other side of the coin or at least create the other side of the coin and call it public property rights and understand that just because you're super wealthy and you can hire a team of lobbyists and team of lawyers and, and give political donations out doesn't give you the, the, the right or at least the entitlement to take uh, something that belongs to you and me. So it's just super aggravating. It's no secret that money, though, is involved in politics. And so we're fighting a really uphill, steep battle. But um, we the, the, the attorney general is involved. These things move slowly. Uh, and there are other legal mechanisms that we're looking at. Um, and uh, more more to continue on the Wilkes Brothers saga. This is a perfect example of of one of the you know initial topics we were talking about with having actual full time paid people like you in place uh, that stays on top of this because most hunters you know we have we have day jobs we have families where you know things that are distracting us from our passion of of being an outdoorsman and access and and sometimes a lot of hunters the only time they think about. Uh, this issue is when it, it's hunting season and they drive up somewhere they've been hunting for years and all of a sudden the road's closed and then they're fired up for like two weeks, but then hunting season ends and they get back into the, the role of, oh, Thanksgiving's coming and I've got a deadline at work and I've got, you know, my truck broke down yeah. um, and, and it distracts us from from these things that are so important. And, and we have to pay attention to this uh, yeah, because yeah, it, this, it's going this to affect us. That's exactly right. This stuff is our work. So, I mean, that's, I think that's the, one of the, the, the kind of the, the pitches I give to potential members or donors of IWF. Just like, look, man, you, you love to hunt and fish. I, I love to hunt and fish. <laughs> um, you have your job to do, like, this is my job. So like, it's the peace of mind. Like you are doing your thing. And for 35 bucks a year, which is our most basic membership, you know, it's some peace of mind that there is some uh, a team of people working full time every day of the work week to to give attention to these issues and in many ways deliver justice. Or I mean, it's, sometimes it's defending what we already have, but it's also being proactive on a number of you know wildlife and access issues too. Okay, so um, I want to let, let's move to the next. Uh, I'm calling them pillars. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. access, access to fish and wildlife, and then habitat. Let's move on to the next one because uh, I don't want to give the Wilkes brothers any more attention unless they want to come on my show. If you do, if you're listening to this, I'm at Jim at the Western Huntsman.com. Shoot me an email. I'll set it up tonight. Uh, what, whatever. Of course, this <laughs> episode is not coming out till next week. So, but tonight will still apply. <laughs> so, okay. So biggest, biggest challenge to access to fish and wildlife. Mm-hmm. What do you see as a challenge uh, for our fish and wildlife and, and some of the things taking place that you guys are kind of focusing on right now? Well, you know, when we look at access to to fish and wildlife, I think there's a few different ways you can look at that. One of the ways I look at it's easy for people to kind of understand is you got to have abundant fish and wildlife populations, first of all. Um, And you have to have policies in place that actually allow you to go hunt them. Um, On that last one, I mean, let's consider uh, a bill that was in front of the Idaho State House in 2017. There had never been a grizzly bear hunting season in Idaho before. And so there was no need for any grizzly bear language in fish and games code in 2017, a bill was introduced to simply add the term grizzly bear mm-hmm. to their code. And so what that bill would do, it wouldn't create a hunting season though. The anti hunting crowd thought it did. It would just pave the way to allow the state to take over management of the grizzly bears once they were delisted. Um, that now, now, there with that passing 
there and the creation of a, a season soon to be, um, <laughs> there is now access to hunt a grizzly bear. Yeah. Uh, and so again, that that's, that's one way we can have access to wildlife. That's a brand new species. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a lot of fishable waters in Idaho that are really hard to get to or the access points, um, places where you can best put in, say, a boat ramp are already uh, private land. And so we'll look for ways to, um, you know, work with landowners um, through our, the support of our organization to find federal funding to maybe purchase an easement through private property. Uh, and then we'll team up with towns. Um, depending on whoever it is, like a, a local municipality, the county commissioners to build support, public support for um, getting like a federal grant that will install a boat ramp that will get people uh, onto the water and after a lot of good fishing there that are there. And so once you have a boat ramp, um, then you have some folks that are going, you know, doing a detour through a town to get to that boat ramp. And then you have someone that's like, you know what, I think I might buy some bait uh, and some gear to put in my shop. Now, there's people coming through here and then all of a sudden there's a little economy around that. So um, access to, that's what we mean when we say access to fish and wildlife. And so I'd say that the, the gosh, that's a huge question. Ask, you know, the biggest challenge to fish and wildlife. Um, I know it, it really is a huge it, question. I, I, I know that there's, I mean, I'm, I'm throwing shotgun questions out and, and, and we need to talk more, you know, specific rifle shots or something, yeah. but, you know, I went, I went for a specific there, um, but I'm going to pull back out here and I'm going to say that you can answer that question. Like, you know, the biggest barrier to get people into hunting and fishing to get access to fish and wildlife uh, is access close to home to places to go hunt. So um, a lot of it can be um, that a lot of the animals are on private land. Can we get some sort of voluntary effort by the private landowner to allow access? Or is, you know, it, does a county have mostly private land and most of the private land is used for one single economic use? Can we get some CRP funding from the federal government? That's the Conservation Reserve Program to maybe fund the corners of some farmer's field to be planted year round. And we can get some pheasants going in that field. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's there's access to habitat to hunt. Um, when we talk about, you know, specific access to wildlife, there's low populations, um, which hinders access to wildlife. Um, and there are so many things that we can do to improve uh, people's access to, to wildlife. And um, my God, uh, we work on a lot of that throughout the year. Um, but it, it also requires partnering a lot with... Uh, local municipalities, like I said, uh, county commissioners, folks who have uh, state legislators, a lot of these people in elected positions, especially at the local level, have a lot of uh, influence in um, signing their name onto a grant that we might draft to get funding for a new boat ramp, to to get funding for some access to a river or something like that. There's that. Yeah, that is a truly big question. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's let's be a little more specific for the habitat one. When, as we're looking at 2021, uh, it's it's in the windshield right now, uh, and I'm pretty excited for a new year. Um, <laughs> well, why? God, I couldn't imagine why. Would you want to leave 2020? Uh, yeah. Well, as we're looking at 2021, what would you yeah. say is is going to be something that's a big focus focus for the federation uh, in terms of habitat? We are involved in several landscape scale conservation. Uh, they're called collaboratives or coalitions. 
Uh, we are involved in a coalition of conservation sportsmen groups that work on the high divide, which is the geographic, it's a term, it's not a, not a lot of people use it, but it's a term for the geographic area between Yellowstone ecosystem and the Frank Church um, along the Montana border there. There's 7 million acres of public land, uh, BLM and Forest Service land. And uh, there's obviously a lot of state and private land in there too, but the, the public land agencies do not have a cohesive plan um, that matches up on cross-boundary issues like uh, you know wildlife that migrate between the boundaries. Um, they don't. They lack a cohesive and modern plan to actually manage for the big game herds that are there. That's a huge opportunity, a huge swath of habitat. I mean, think about how many people you know that hunt from the Yellowstone caldera all the way up to North Fork, uh, up above Salmon, or all the way to Stanley or south towards Craters of the Moon. It's a massive chunk of Idaho that lacks a real clear policy directive for wildlife. That is going to be a very important opportunity. And sports, eh, those, those, those processes, uh, resource management plans and forest plans can take a few years, and rightfully so. It's a lot to, of detail. But sportsmen, um, that's going to be initiated hopefully next year. And sportsmen will have, should have, play a major role in framing that management. And that's that's part of what IWF does is we let people know what's happening, how they can get involved. We'll have regional meetings in towns across the region. Um, that's a great one. And, and that can dictate, uh, you know, what landscapes are treated for uh, habitat restoration. Is there a lot of cheatgrass that we could <clears throat> eliminate and get do some aerial seeding to replant some more native grasses and forbs and sagebrush and all those kind of native plants that are much more nutritious for our big game. Um, so that's cool. a really good, kind of, yeah, that's, that's a huge opportunity. Um, another one that's, you know, really great, I think, uh, and it's, a, I'll, I'll just highlight it because it's slightly different. We're also involved in um, a coalition called the Pioneers Alliance. And that works on about that, that coalition works in an area, it's about 3 million acres of public, private, and state land. It goes from the northern border of Craters of the Moon all the way up to the peaks in the Pioneers. So it's just uh, east of, of Sun Valley and Ketchman Haley. And it's, <clears throat> I'm sorry for the people who hunt back there, but I'm just going to say it. It's a gorgeous spot. There's, <laughs> It's got a ton <laughs> of wildlife values. It's the southern terminus for Idaho's longest pronghorn migration. So that's where all these pronghorn that migrate 160 miles. Uh, they they, they wow. start. Yeah, in the winter, they winter in this, uh, the Little Wood River Valley and that kind of basin down there. But that's that's where the Sharps fire burned about two years ago. And it burned mm -hmm. a lot of acres. And that was very critical wintering ground for elk deer and this this pronghorn migration. So we have been working with the other conservation organizations um, that are involved, but as well as the city of Cary, um, the the county commissioners, um, a lot the uh, some some ag industry representatives to restore that habitat because a lot of what we do is we reach across we reach out to people that don't have, I mean, uh, they have totally different missions. I mean, like the, the, the Idaho Cattlemen's Association, their, their, their thing is to produce beef and, and, and represent their, their members. Ours is to, you know, advocate for hunting and fishing, but we share where, where cattle 
are grazed cattle, they want nutritious grass and forbs for their cattle, just like we want that same stuff for elk and deer. And so, you know, we team up with those kinds of entities to say, how can we restore this landscape for our mutual benefit? So we have, uh, with our conservation partners, we have identified over the last few years, um, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to purchase a lot of the private ground, a conservation easement. So we're not actually buying it, but we're just buying the development rights. And as you know, Sun Valley is expanding and there's a lot of, I'll call them yuppies, uh, are coming from out of state <laughs> and they want to have these like little ranchettes or they're buying these Ma and Pa ranches to develop them uh, into like luxury home areas. And so that's a real threat to this wildlife who needs that range open and functioning. And so we've helped, you know, identify actually this, this, a lot of this work came before we actually joined the Pioneers Alliance, but Millions of dollars have been put on the ground to purchase the conservation easement, uh, the development rights of a lot of these ranches. So Mon Pa continues to do the ranching. It'll be passed on to another ranching family. And we've prevented, you know, a 100 acre ranch here, uh, a 1000 acre ranch here from being developed. So <clears throat> that's one way we conserve that landscape and that habitat. Uh, the other way we, we look for state and federal grants. We just put, uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars on the ground this just this summer um, installing beaver dam analog structures which are basically they replicate what a beaver would do on the landscape and it raises the water table and increases that riparian zone which is super vital obviously for ungulates that we hunt but also sage grouse and chucker and so it, it benefits a, a ton of, of wildlife and beavers are starting to recolonize. So now it's a benefit to trappers. It's pretty great. Um, and it benefits the, the private land and the, the public and state land down there, too. Um, and so that's post Sharps fire restoration we're doing. That's a really critical landscape. And another part of that I kind of mentioned is we're working with state agencies and federal agencies and they're coming up with funding um, and we're delivering public support for collaring a lot of those animals so we can identify where they're going and then we can find out which habitats are really important to them. And that's how we found out that there is a 160 mile pronghorn migration. They go mm -hmm. from North the craters of the moon and they go through a tiny little bottleneck past INL and uh, forget the range down there, but they'll walk all the way up Birch Creek. Um, yeah. Damn near the, the beaver heads. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty incredible migration. So um, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's another 2021. We're going to continue to build on that support. And that is just, those are just two examples of work that we do bringing sportsmen to the table where there's opportunity to bring our issues to the forefront and advocate for them efficiently and effectively and make sure that we, uh, can continue to, you know, hunt and fish and have all these great things that Idaho provides us. Fantastic. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> that INL facility is crazy, dude. I swear they're raising aliens or something in there. <laughs> you know, I keep waiting for like some sort of nuclear bowl uh, elk to wander out of there that has right? like an eight foot spread. Three heads. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Three uh, I'm heads. telling you, man, I, I, that, you know, my, my day job is I, is I, I'm an estimator for a big roofing company and, and we, we do big industrial roofs like that. And I, so I've had to look at some of their roofs and like they, the security on that place to, to get in, they're like asking for blood samples and four different forms of ID. And, and then like, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to even look over at this one building. And I'm like, geez, man, just let me look at your oh, roof. Yeah. I'm out of here. Cause I'll, I'll bet there's some radioactive jackrabbits coming out of this place. Oh man. I've, I've, <laughs> 
peered into the property and seen great animals in there and i've just like salivated at the opportunity i'm wondering <laughs> you know is there going to be an opportunity in the future maybe if uh, a hunting season just there that'd be really great well <laughs> you, you'd, you'd want to get the meat tested make sure it's not got some kind of crazy <laughs> chemical in it or something you know <laughs> yeah that's probably that's maybe it'll give you superpowers i don't know most likely you never know yeah really sick <laughs> well I, I i hope you don't have anybody showing up like with torches and stuff because you've been you've been talking about the, all these real specific areas for or i know I, they're like secret spots for hunters and uh, i know honestly one of the hardest we 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 debate this probably weekly you know we have all this great work that we do and and geographic regions across the state and we want to highlight it you know we're involved in this uh sand creek collaborative sand creek is a desert over in eastern idaho it is an incredibly it's a, such a cool landscape it's 400 square miles and it's considered lush desert which is an oxymoron but it gets a ton of precipitation and yet it is still a desert it winters 10,000 elk pronghorn elk mule deer and pronghorn and it has the country's only wintering, um, sorry, desert moose population. It holds about 500 moose in the winter. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no no other place that holds moose in open sagebrush. Um, and and it's it's pretty amazing. But uh, cool. that's also where, the you know, that's also, a, again, I think people are going to string me up for this, but there's sharp tail hunting over there. I mean, you can't hunt sharp tail in, in north or, or west Idaho. And you can over in Eastern Idaho and it's only a month long season in October. And so we're trying to highlight like, Hey, there's this great work that our collaborative is doing over here, setting up good wildlife policy. And we're going to enshrine this, you know, valuable winter habitat and some sort of great policy um, that comes from the state uh, forever. And at this, you know, so we want to promote that. And then we show pictures and we've had people say like, Hey, I hunt there. <laughs> it's just like, well, <laughs> I mean, there's, it's tough. It is tough to balance that. <laughs> that is tough, man. I've, I've slipped up and, and said a couple of things on this show before, and I'll get a, I'll get an email from somebody who's just livid about the fact oh, yeah. that I brought up that particular road or whatever, but uh, I try not yeah. to, I, I'm super careful most of the time, but um, so we talked, we, we, we kind of touched on it there for a minute, uh, you know, like in the beginning of the show here. Uh, I want to kind of wrap this conversation up on the on the topic of unifying hunters and the importance mm. of that and and why it's important to have like like we were talking you've got you've got groups like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the Foundation mm. for Wildlife Management the Idaho Trappers Association these are all micro groups and and I'm 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 getting the feel or the sense that Idaho Wildlife Federation is more of a macro group and it's it's kind of for all sportsmen and and you guys mm. do important work and can you kind of talk about from your uh, from your angle uh, that that from from your optic what what does it look like out there right now in terms of unified sportsmen and what what needs to be improved on? Yeah, uh, well, there's always room for improvement. I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I I encourage people to join as many. Sportsmen, wildlife conservation, nonprofits, um, as possible. I think uh, what needs to be improved upon is that sportsmen want an organization that every keystroke they make on a computer, every email, every action on a piece on a landscape has they have to agree with 100. 
And I'm just going to tell people right now that that is impossible. Um, mm -hmm. I have seen people say, you know what? I agree with 80% of group X does, but they did this one thing I don't like. And then they're done. They're not paying that organization anymore. And it just, it makes me cringe because there's not a single politician that has done a hundred percent of the things that I like, and I still understand their value in, in at least one issue or another. And so sportsmen need to sort of, I think, it, I don't know what, I don't know what the root of that is, if it's the tribalism, if it's what it is, but we've got to be able to forgive each other for things that happened in the past. Organizations are made up of boards. Number one, boards come and go. Board members are are fluent. They come and go. Staff members of organizations that have paid staff come and go. Organizations are not static in their beliefs. I have taken shit for things that the Wildlife Federation did. I'm not kidding you. Back in the, the 60s, um, oh, someone sent to me a typewriter written comment that a staff person wrote regarding some issue. And I was just like blown away. I'm like, I wasn't even a twinkle in my dad's eye yet. My dad was a kid back then. And so I'm like, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. We just, I mean, it's, we have to learn that not everybody's just like each other. And that's, that is the, the, the sort of my goal is to unite people and say, it's okay to disagree, but there are bedrock issues. There are enough of them that we can all come together and we can't, well, I think a, an old timer had told me when I had started getting IWF together, he said, ah, sportsmen like to split the baby every 10 years in Idaho. And what he meant by that was there's always an attempt every so often for someone to come forward and say, there's some unifying issue. And, and then the sportsmen will unify around that. And then their egos will get in the way. They'll fight each other. They won't forgive each other. And then they kind of dissipate. And then they come back together. And I, I, my goal is to keep that from happening, at least while I am here. And so like that's you said, a tall order. It is such a tall order, man. And I mean, like, oh, God damn, that is the toughest part of my job. Yeah, I'm pinching I, my, I, I uh, know, man, it's it, you you have you are in a tough position because the the stuff that you're working on that, that a lot of people when we all get focused, we, we talked about uh, my buddy Scott Schmidt over at Idaho Bowhunter Association. And actually, did I say that right? Idaho bow hunter? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, ISB, ISB, ISB Idaho State bow hunters. I knew that was wrong. Okay, <laughs> so you know he's he's in a tough predicament there, right? Because when you break it down into these micro groups like this, you have bow hunters that get pissed off about you know lighted knocks versus trad yeah. bows versus um, you know this and that and all, all the stuff that he has to deal with and all those different personalities that he has to deal with and then you, you you're you're on a whole other level even so you've got the different factions within bow hunting that have to deal with the different factions between people who who can't agree on whether or not a 6.5 Creedmoor is a is a cool rifle or if it's a girl gun you, you know that's the I, argument and, and so all, all these people, <laughs> all these, I'm, I'm buying one for my, uh, uh, for my kids, by the way, just so everybody, just so if I put that out there, don't attack me. Uh, but it's, I think it's a cool rifle, but it's for my kids. So it, it's a good way to kind of, you know, uh, balance that. But, but yeah, that, that's the thing is how do we do this? How do we do this? When, when people get so fired up on whether or not, 
uh, that that 6.5 Creedmoor is is a good weapon, mm-hmm. or, or or should be you know vilified, or or bow hunters that are you know one guy's he's such a purist with traditional bows, he hates anything to do with compound bows, and yeah. that guy is you know arguing about how the houndsmen are wrecking his traditional bear hunt uh, with his bow, yeah. um, I, all these things that just pile on top. It's like a shit pile, a, a shit sandwich that turns into a Big Mac. And we, we have to figure out these unifying issues and remember that we do have these because bow hunters and houndsmen and trappers and rifle hunters and muzzleload hunters, we all benefit from having access to good fish and wildlife. We all benefit from good habitat. We all benefit from having access to the public lands and not allowing people like the Wilkes brothers to come in here and jack up our spots. And, and that's, that's what we have to remember. And I'm just not sure how to totally get this message out there outside of doing these podcast episodes where we discuss these things. Cause Facebook for, for specifically is a freaking cesspool for all this negativity. (laughs) Are you saying that, Facebook is not a good tool to have nuanced conversation, Jim. <laughs> uh, I might be implying that. Look, I, yeah. I, I put out this episode last week uh, where I had to, in the intro, explain something that I had a discussion about with the North of, Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever, uh, a very mm-hmm. micro group. Uh, and, and we had a great conversation, but I, I was putting it out there on Facebook and I had people PMing me about um, you know how they're going to fight they're, they're going to fight us on, on the second doe tag and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And they're using that little emoji instead of just liking the post mm-hmm. that they, you could do that one where it, it's the angry face and it's super <laughs> oh, yeah. threatening. It's a real ominous little way to express yourself, you know, and, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, you guys, I, I had to explain in the, like my position on that within the episode. And I hope that clarified it, but yeah. that's, you guys are missing the point when you're doing that. Instead of giving me an angry emoji face, uh, ominous thread on my post that I put out there to promote the episode, get involved. Get involved with a yep. group like Idaho Wildlife Federation. Get involved with Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever. Get involved with Foundation for Wildlife Management. If you want to see changes, yeah. this is the vessel in which we can all fit on and and actually make a positive impact. Sorry, I went off yeah. on kind of a rant there, man. No, no, I, I, I have been criticized. So I am on a few boards myself and I have been criticized um, for being on those boards. And they're like that they, I mean, most of the criticisms are unfounded in my opinion, but um, they said, well, how could you be a part of that board? And I said, I am on that board so I can bring my perspective and change what I see is a wrong direction. Exactly. And I don't attack them on Facebook. I mean, I, I value challenging those people in a, in a compassionate way. Those people have their own values. But I think like, you know, if you don't like, if you care about whitetail, but you might not like a one opinion that they're, they're pursuing, engage with them, become a member of their board. I mean, it's, it's, and you know, you go, go, I mean, I just think it's a, it's not really useful to go onto Facebook and fight with them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have I, a policy with that, Brian, that I adopted like four years ago for Facebook because Facebook is like contentious. So is Twitter, but I don't, I don't know much <laughs> about Twitter, but Facebook is super contentious. And yeah. my policy that has served me well is if, if whether I know the person or not, if I won't say it to their face, I won't say it on Facebook. And mm-hmm. I stick by that. And I've, I've said some contentious things to people on Facebook since I've ad- adopted this policy. And make no mistake, I will say that to their face. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I think that people need to kind of adopt that to kind of smooth those uh, rough waters out there on, on the social media spectrum a little bit, uh, because it, it does nothing. It's just like politics. You know, the, the, the ugliness in politics today, in my opinion, it, that all comes from social media. Because if mm-hmm. I, I was listening to, uh, I think it was Steve Rinelli on, on media mm-hmm. and, and he was on, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast and, and, and he said exactly what I've been thinking, uh, a, a lot. Like when I go out in town and I'm at, I'm at the grocery store, I'm in a gas station, there's not this vitriol or hate or contention in person. Right. It's, it's on Facebook and the people that, that like, rip me apart on Facebook are probably the same person that I talked about the weather with at the, at the gas station that morning. You know, you know what I mean? It's so yeah, I think the best analogy is like people on social media talk like they, uh, they're not going to get pimp slapped across the face for, yeah, <laughs> for saying I, something. Dude, yeah, some people, they, they, a lot of people need to be bitch slapped. Uh, and they, <laughs> they, they do. I mean, there, this is like, man, somebody, did not teach you manners because you wouldn't say that to somebody's face. And, and people said yeah. things to me that I know for a fact, they wouldn't say that to my face. And uh, yep. And I, I think it, but it goes back to that point of like, uh, we can't, you got to recognize when someone is in your corner and, and, or will be on these issues and sportsmen for the most part are in each other's corner. But the more we gravitate towards that behavior, especially online, we are making enemies with people who we need on our side. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just within our own community, let alone. And then, of course, like I said before, outside our own circular firing squad, we have the people who are actually gunning for things that we all uh, want to protect. And so that's the thing is like it has taken a lot of energy for me to grow IWF to a point to, to get to the point where people realize we need to be unified. And if we split up, it will take another five years just to get back to the, the 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 momentum we have now to fight something. And it might be that we don't have that kind of time behind us. So, you know, if we've been able to grow IWF, you know, five years ago, we had zero affiliates, zero membership. Now we have 29 affiliated memberships. And with the, the membership of those organizations combined with our supporters, that's 45,000 people that IWF represents. That's not the whole, you know, that's not everybody that buys a license in Idaho, but we're getting there and we're building that. If we can continue that momentum, we have a hundred thousand affiliate membership and individual supporters will be a a, a political force to be reckoned with. But if people instead want to reverse and and return to the vitriolic, oh, well, you know, we might agree on this one thing or on 10 things, but then one more thing I, we need to separate, then you know, we're going to keep getting jacked around. And so we, I mean, it's just, uh, we've got to keep it going. And like you said, it's even within the bow hunters, there are disagreements on this and that. And when you add in all of the things that IWF works on, it is, it becomes um, exponentially more difficult to keep people together. But I will say that we've done a pretty good job of it so far. And I don't exactly know what the recipe for success is. I just have been doing what I know to do. Um, I talk to people directly. I'm passionate about hunting and fishing. And um, I'm just honest and I'm direct. And so that's important. When we have people that, when we have people that will complain on social media, um, I'll contact them and I'll give them my number and we'll talk. I have talked to people who have just lit into me and we'll talk for an hour. 
Um, and a lot of organizations that get to a point where they're very large, they probably won't care about someone who's not going to give them $35. Like they're not missing out on a lot, but I don't know how else to do it. You know, growing up hunting across Idaho, going to restaurants in Orofino when, you know, sitting in there freezing our butt off uh, in the boat, trying to fish for steelhead and going into the Ponderosa or going into Seven Devils and Riggins and we're going into the uh, pub and grub in Cooterville hunting turkeys. Um, you just get to know people. And I don't know another way to really. So when people want to confront me or say something that's not true or they want to fight us on a, a stance we take, to me, it's an opportunity to say, well, here's here's why we did that. And so we do take a lot of time to address the people who want to divide us and make these wedge issues. And I, they, mm -hmm. they eventually come around. And a surprising number of these people who wanted to just kind of shitpost uh, something on an IWF page, if I talk to them, like, I didn't, I don't ask them for a donation, but sure as shit, the next day I'll see a donation uh, on our electronic inbox here from that same person, because I think that they just appreciated that they found out that we're on the same team and yeah. that, um, the position that we took on an issue isn't actually hurting their ability to have access to hunting and fishing. Uh, it was just an opinion that they had. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. A lot of a lot of uh, the contention comes out of just people not knowing or understanding fully the issue, and it's not because it's not because they're dumb or they're not you know uh, smart or anything like that. It's just because nobody has the time to keep up. We have a myriad of issues we're dealing with, and and nobody uh, can keep up with all of these things going on. So this, I think, that's why it's important that that people like you and I continue to have these conversations. Yep. And and Brian, I want to. What I'm looking at doing uh, in the future, I want to have panel discussions on the show. So I want to get people like you and maybe somebody from the Idaho Fish and Game and maybe somebody from another organization or just a hunter um, mm -hmm. on on one episode where we, we have these conversations and try to come to an understanding with each other uh, so that, that maybe it can help unify um, – all of us Western hunters that deal with a lot of these same issues. And so yeah. uh, let's, let's keep that in mind. And, and we should talk about that coming, coming up, uh, you know, down the road here. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. let's, let's maybe um, close this out with, uh, cause this has been a great conversation. I can actually keep going with you for another couple hours here, but uh, I know, I know we're getting a little long. Can we close it out with how people can get involved and find the Idaho Wildlife Federation and kind of like an elevator pitch from you, the executive director, as to why people should get involved? Yes. Yes. I love elevator pitches. Okay. So first <laughs> of all, you can uh, find out more information uh, like any other uh, modern way. You can follow us on, on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I don't have Twitter, Jim. I agree with you. I don't really get it. And it's it stupid. feels like looking through the mind of a schizophrenic. <laughs> so if you follow us on Facebook, that's obviously free. You can go to our website, which is idahowildlife.org. You can kind of peruse through there. Uh, there's um, an about tab. You can see uh, the staff, our board members. Um, we have a state legislature tab where you can find out the legislative voting record of your state legislator on sportsman issues. Um, we have a news tab where you can find out all the articles that we've produced uh, over the years. And there's a search tab. So if you want to type in Salmon Steelhead, you can find out everything we've done on Salmon and Steelhead. And then we have an events tab. Um, not a lot of events going on with COVID these days, um, but soon, hopefully we will begin doing that. Um, but yeah, you can find out a lot of information. Um, you can also sign up um, on our email list. We do a monthly digital only email our 
membership prefers digital. We're not spending their membership dollars on print materials. And we'll kind of do a roundup of what we did that month and conservation issues. Um, but my final pitch, I think, is this. There are a lot of sportsmen and wildlife groups that operate in the West and in Idaho that are very worthy of joining. And those can be very niche. And I think you you should find your niche and maybe there's a few of them. Maybe you're a bird hunter and a trapper and uh, you know, fishermen support those organizations, become a member of their board. If they do something that you don't like, that's your opportunity to communicate with them and maybe change their course. So you have better representation. Uh, but the value of the Federation is that we bring all of those disparate voices and clubs together to have a unified voice, um, to be engaged in the arenas where sportsmen have a lot to win and a lot to lose. All of those organizations that I just talked about, typically they don't have paid staff to give the appropriate amount of attention that these issues need. Um, but we do. And so we represent their interests um, as our job. And so if you value that and you think that there is, um, we should have paid staff um, representing the broad interests of groups um, as a unified voice, then I would say, hey, consider becoming a member. Uh, you can go on our shop online and uh, if you want to buy a shirt or a hat or whatever, that money, the, the profits of that goes to our work as well. But every little bit counts. Um, and uh, you'll find, I think, if you follow us, that um, as a group from Idaho, uh, people who grew up in Idaho and hunt in Idaho, we get the diversity of the people who live in Idaho, and we get the diversity of the people that have livelihoods in Idaho. So we don't litigate, we don't um, obfuscate, we don't try to get in the way. Uh, we just try to make sure that everybody can get a piece of their pie, and like, and, and they do it in a way that we can continue to have really good hunting and fishing in Idaho. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the final pitch. And, um, I hope people, uh, look awesome. us up and decide to join. Yeah, no, that, that, that was good. Actually. Yeah. I, I appreciate you coming prepared with that one because usually I, when I, when I tell people to give me an elevator pitch, they, uh, they stumble a little bit with that one. So, uh, I appreciate it. This has been a great conversation, <laughs> yeah, that, Brian. I, that, that came from the heart. I have no script in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, let's keep in touch, uh, Brian, and, uh, my, you know, best wishes to, to you guys and the Idaho Wildlife Federation and, and whatever the show can do to help you guys. Uh, you know, we're here for you as well. Let's uh, d definitely keep the line open and, and uh, get on and bash some Wilkes Brothers again and uh, down the road and in the future. And I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, Jim. I'll always have time. Thanks. made it all the way to the end thank you so much for tuning into the show we sure appreciate your support this is jim huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at instagram at the western huntsman and on facebook at the western huntsman and you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com thanks again we'll see you guys next time stay western and i'll see you on the mountain